through the written word and the spoken word. May we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. My late mother was a geographer and a geographic educator, college professor, and specialist in the early development of the field of geospatial technology and its applications in the educational settings. She was a real dum-dum. <laughs> no, really, she was one of the smartest people I've ever known. But she racked up frequent flyer miles and other seasoned traveler perks as she jetted around the country for speaking engagements on topics that were related to her particular field of study. But she used to say this. She was only considered an expert if the people who asked her to speak lived at least 90 miles away from home. Because speaking to a hometown group of folks meant that they knew more about her than just her field of study. They knew her as an avid mahjong player and somewhat adequate tennis player. She was a closet smoker, I know a lot of them knew that. She was sometimes on the search committee in the church for the new rector or served on the vestry and she sang in the choir and she was married to our dad who never didn't inhabit a space, particularly when he played the role of the rabbi in the community theater production of Fiddler on the Roof. Sometimes also, well, maybe all the time, she was known as the mother of three girls who occasionally got into shenanigans around town. Not me, my sisters, of course. Um, her expertise was actually just a sidebar, almost a footnote to those in the community that knew her so well. I'm thinking Jesus surely experienced some of that skepticism as he returned to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. He stood up in front of these familiar people and stakes his claim as the fulfiller of the law. In the congregation, I'm sure, were his friends, his buddies growing up, his extended family, and I'll bet even a few folks there who didn't think that the kid who belonged to Mary and Joseph could possibly have anything of value to share with them. But share is exactly what he did. Now, we didn't have microphones in those days, right? Much less a mic drop after a convincing soliloquy. But I wonder if the early evangelists who recorded the events of Jesus' ministry used their own colloquial term when they said, rolling up the scroll, giving it back to the attendant, and then sitting down while everyone's eyes remained fixed on him. I wonder if that had the same effect as a mic drop. This is his first public address recorded in Luke's Gospel in his ministry. He'd already been baptized by the Holy Spirit, he'd already been tempted in the wilderness, and he had taught in further away synagogues to great acclaim, so we hear. But now he's tempting the strength of his ministry by coming home to share the good news with those who knew him the best for the last 30 years or so. These folks in the congregation would have also known this section of scripture from Isaiah that Jesus reads 
from the scroll. They would have known it very well. The fact that that scroll was present in that synagogue would have meant that it was part of their canon, their early Bible, if you will, their established and accepted artifact. It would have been proclaimed by all the rabbis and teachers, and for those who were in regular attendance, they would have even probably had it memorized because they would have heard it proclaimed in that space so often, but not proclaimed this way, not read by the one, the one staking the claim to fulfill the scripture by just being who he was. The next two lines of the text are not included in our section from the gospel for today, but they read, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They were amazed. The son of Joseph, of all people, was the one proclaiming to fulfill the very scripture at the heart of what they knew to be true about God. If you have to boil it down, this proclamation that Jesus makes that day in the synagogue would be his elevator speech, his thesis statement about his ministry as the fully divine and fully human savior of the world. The text itself was familiar. Jesus was a familiar person, but the people who heard it were amazed, and God was revealed anew with a fresh perspective, a new way of understanding. The God who was the God of Israel, you see, wasn't accessible to the people in their tradition, unless they were the priests of the synagogue. And here was Jesus, right in front of them, staking this claim that not only had he been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, but that he was charged with bringing that good news to the poor, to release the captives, to give sight to the blind, and to give freedom for the oppressed, and he was right there in front of them. They could touch him. They probably had. He was their hometown guy, and that's an important part of this gospel story of the good news, because the heart of the good news is that if it isn't good news for everyone, especially the downtrodden and marginalized all around us, then it's not really good news at all. The economic realities in Jesus' time separated the haves from the have-nots quite literally, so that they would never even really have to cross paths in society. Now, when I say haves and have-nots, I'm not just talking about economic disparities. That poorness, that word that we find for poor, stretches to include all categories of folks who did not hold power in the community or status or even live relatively comfortably. In fact, society made them invisible. So what does this mean for us today, 2,000 years later? One of my favorite theologians is Gustavo Gutierrez. He's a Peruvian philosopher, a theologian, and a Catholic priest. And he coined the theological phrase, the preferential option for the poor. The 
preferential option for the poor. His work centers on understanding that while God created us perfectly, we selected and designed our communities and our society to live in ways that separate entire segments of the population and limit their ability from having their basic needs met. We did that. And that our ministry as Christians unites us. It calls us to be united with God to claim and restore a liberation, a freedom from our human-created system, the systems that fail to recognize the God image that each of us bear and each of those in those categories most certainly bear. And for Gutierrez, that is especially important for us as Christians to grasp. Because if not us, then who will join with God to liberate God's people from oppression? What does it mean that the reality of the common life that we experience only provides for flourishing for just a select few of us? while so many others of us clamor for the most basic of human existences right under our noses. Gutierrez says poverty is not inevitable. Well, poverty is not inevitable is hard for me sometimes when I look around. It feels like it's inevitable. It feels like the society won't allow it to be any other way. Gutierrez says no, it is not inevitable. While we believe in a life-giving, liberating, loving God, as presiding Bishop Curry reminds us every time we hear him speak, we are the co-workers in that project. We are not God, but we are the hands and feet of God's kingdom. We are the workers. We're the dreamers. We're the believers. We can bring about justice. We can dismantle those systems that oppress people all around us. Now, I'm not talking about mercy ministries here. Feeding the poor, good, don't stop doing that. Feeding the poor, though, still keeps them dependent on the power structure for the food. This is also, though, about justice, beyond mercy into justice. It's about shifting the power from ourselves and then standing back to allow the voiceless to find their voices. I had a boss one time who had a saying, simple, but not easy. Paul writes to the people of Corinth that we heard today in the New Testament lesson that we are all members of the body and all receivers of the one Holy Spirit. Each of us has God-given gifts. Each of us has cultivated talents and abundance of love that is more than enough for sharing. Sharing in ways that liberate and reconcile creation to the way that God created it and the way that God desires it to be. And dare I say, we might desire it also. The body of Christ, though, is counting on you. It's counting on me. The body of Christ needs each and every one of us to step out of our places of comfort and into the spaces that bring healing. Like Jesus standing in the synagogue of Nazareth, among the people that he knew, 
the people that knew the things that he had done as a child, all the way till today. He made his ministry public to those people. Our own ministries are like that as well. It starts with our community. It starts with the people around us, the people who love us and will join with us. So I wonder what it is that you're feeling called to do in response to hearing the words of Jesus. 